0: Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The strange new world of the Bible is very, very strange. It constantly subverts all of our expectations, no matter how many times we come to it. It reveals things about ourselves that we didn't even know about ourselves. And it points to an ever-present reality that runs counter to everything we think we know. So hear me when I tell you, Jacob is the absolute worst. I mean, there is just nothing good about this guy. Now we know plenty of figures from scripture and they've all got their problems, nobody's perfect, but Jacob is a loser, just an unmitigated disaster. Before he's even born, he wrestles against his twin brother Esau in the womb, which is a perfect foreshadowing of his life to come. And even when Esau is born, born first, he comes out with his twin brother grabbing at his leg, so his parents name their second-born child Jacob. And do you know what Jacob means? It means heel grabber. What kind of name is heel grabber? (laughs) He will come to be the one who is a hustler a scoundrel, a liar, a cheat, a fool, the faithless son of Isaac and Rebekah, he is a heel grabber. So long story short, two decades before the infamous battle royale by the banks of the Jabbok River, Jacob swindles his brother Esau out of his birthright. Esau, he's red, he's hairy, that's what his name means. And he is the firstborn, he is every parent's dream. He is the one who goes out into the field. He hunts for the whole family. He does everything he's asked to do. And one day, after he's been out in the fields for hours upon hours, with hunger, he comes home with all this food, and his brother, Jacob, has been making some chili. See? And Jacob... He's sitting there making the chili, and, and Esau comes in and he says, Brother of mine, I am so hungry. Please give me some of that chili that you've been making. Now, does Jacob willingly hand over the chili to his brother, his twin brother, the one who has done everything for the family, who's earned more of his keep than Jacob has? Does he give it to his brother? No. He prepares a plate. He lets the scent waft into his brother's nose, and he says, Hey, Esau, I'll give you some of this chili, but you have to give me your birthright in return. And Esau, like I said, he's famished from working for the family. He willingly agrees because what good is a birthright in comparison with the deep hunger you might feel in your belly? But it doesn't even stop there. Because later, Isaac in his old age, the father, his eyes are weary, he's he's poor of sight, poor of health, he's near death. He asks Esau to come and to receive his blessing. AKA, it's time, son, for you to get your inheritance. And you're the firstborn, which means you get everything. Isaac wants to pass on all of his wealth and all of his land and all of his possessions. Esau, come bring me some of my favorite food that I might hand over the goods to the family. But the heel grabber, the heel grabber is quick to grab the heel. He walks in himself with the aforementioned food. He boldly lies to his father. He covers himself in fur to appear hairier like Esau. He leans forward to receive the kiss that conveys everything, and he takes it without an inch of remorse. So, for those of you keeping score, that's three of the Ten Commandments broken in as many verses. Now, what's Esau's response to his heel grabbing brother, heel grabbing his blessing? He says, I'm going to kill you. And Jacob has to flee for his life. Jacob becomes a stranger in a strange land. He's wandering about. And during this time, as Eric mentioned, he has a dream. A dream from God. He is sleeping on a rock. And in the dream, in the vision, he sees a ladder coming down from the heavens. And there are angels that are going up and down the ladder. And he hears the Lord say, Jacob, I am with you. And know that I will never, ever leave you. Which... Considering what has just happened and what's about to happen it sounds more like a threat than it sounds like a promise. When Jacob wakes up from the dream, he makes an altar to the Lord, and it says he's afraid. His fear leads him to prayer. Does he pray for forgiveness? Does he offer a contrite heart to the Lord for all that he has said and done? No, he bargains with God. He says, Lord, if you stay with me, if you keep me, if you make sure I have food to eat and I have clothes to wear, then... You can be my God. If you do all these things for me, Lord, then I'll let you be my God. He encounters the divine through this dramatic vision of the latter, and he is still no better than he was before. Soon, Jacob has nowhere left to go. Esau's fury remains on the horizon behind him, so he reaches out to his uncle. His name's Laban. He takes him in, provides the very food and shelter that he had asked God for. He meets Rachel. He bargains with Laban to be able to marry her. He works for seven years, and then on his wedding night, he is duped by his uncle, who's a heel grabber of his own, and he consummates the relationship with Rachel's sister, Leah. He sleeps with the wrong woman. More bargaining ensues, and with another seven years of labor, he's finally granted the wife he wanted from the beginning. Friends, soap operas aren't even this good. But there's more. Because after 14 years of labor, after receiving untold wealth and two wives and children, Jacob returns the hospitality of his uncle-turned-father-in-law by cheating him out of his wealth and hiding away the best of the livestock for himself. Again, not to make too fine a point on it, that's a few more commandments in his few chapters. Jacob is a no-good, dirty, rotten scoundrel. He runs from all of his problems while making more problems for himself and for his family. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a cheat. There is nothing holy about this heel-grabbing son of uh, Isaac. Why, then, do we read about this man and his wandering heart? Why? Why do we lift these verses up from the Bible and then all say together, Thanks be to God. Why? Why? Why does God promise to remain with Jacob even though he has nothing to show for his so-called life? It's because Jacob isn't his real name. He's on the run from all of his mistakes, from all of his failures, perhaps even from himself. He catches wind that his brother has finally caught up with him. So he divides up his family and all of his possessions into two camps. He sends them away from each other because if Esau encounters him, he hopes that at least half of all of his things will survive. And alone, he sleeps by the river. A strange figure appears in the night. Perhaps the consequences of his actions have really caught up with him. They wrestle until the day breaks. The stranger knocks Jacob on the hip, dislocating it forever, and demands for the fight to end. But Jacob refuses. He says, no, 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 no. We're not done. We're not done until you bless me. You see, he's still looking for blessings. Even here. Who are you, the figure asks. He says, my name's Jacob. And the figure says, no, it's not. Your name's Israel. Because you have striven against God and other humans. And you've made it to the other side. So now, Israel returns with his own question. Well, who are you? But he receives no answer. And as mysteriously as the figure enters, he disappears. Israel names the place Peniel, which means the face of God, because in the wrestler, he met the Lord. That's where the scripture ends. But the story keeps going. Because when the morning comes, Israel sees that Esau is there. He has 400 men flanking him on his right and on his left. So Israel walks toward his brother bows to the ground no less than seven times and then he stands before him and Esau runs forward he tackles his good for nothing heel grabbing brother to the ground and he finally gets a chance to exact his revenge and yet instead of pummeling him with punches Esau embraces his twin brother and he covers him with kisses and with tears here endeth the story what a weird one I mean, the Bible's got some weird stories in it. This one, it might take the cake. Jacob, Israel, he's so flawed. He learns nothing in his life except for the fact that he deserves nothing and he gets everything. We read this story and we can call it good news because grace prevails. His actions catch up with him. All of the hurt, all of the pain, he is caught. There is no escape. And only in that moment is he fully known and for the first time, he is loved It's at the end, after failure and betrayal, he's vulnerable and at his brother's mercy. And he discovers an acceptance which he never could have earned and never would have deserved. Which, oddly enough, leads us backward in the story slightly. Decades before this battle royale at the river, long before he had a taste of forgiveness, he had that vision, he had that dream of the ladder reaching into the sky. Israel knows, after all is said and done, that God is indeed at the end of that ladder. But more importantly now, he knows that the good news, the gospel, is not that God is up there waiting for him to finally figure it all out. Instead, God comes down the ladder to meet him exactly where he is. And he has the scars to prove it. The good news of the gospel for Israel, for each and every one of us, is that God meets us in our sins, not in our successes. Now, for some reason, we've got it in our heads that like Jacob, we've got to do whatever it takes to win the battle we call life. We'll deceive our parents. We will lie to our spouses. We will betray our families. We will dig these deep pits from which we think we can escape all while making everything worse and worse while we think everything's getting better and better. We will make horrible decisions and choices all in the name of progress. But life, and in particular, the life of faith, isn't about how we need to get good for God. It's about how God comes to us. And God's been doing it since the beginning. From Adam, Adam, where are you? To wrestling by the banks of the river to the sleepy little town of Bethlehem. God comes to us. And when God comes to us, and we know who we really are, and we know what we've done, and we've left undone, and we expect to be clobbered with guilt, instead we get clobbered with grace years ago when I was serving a different church I was sitting in my office one day probably daydreaming about the sermon for Sunday and a parishioner knocked on my door and she just invited herself to come sit down at the table she was older a little more seasoned and I'd never seen her with a more youthful glow in all the time that I had been at the church and she shouted at me she said preacher you are never going to believe what happened to me the best stories always start that way Preacher, you're never going to believe what happened to me. I said, well, let's hear it. She said, you know how you keep preaching about forgiveness? Well, I don't know what happened, what came over me, but I finally decided that it was time for me to tell my husband that I cheated on him. I said, what preacher have you been listening to? (laughs) She said, well, now, it was 30 years ago, and it was only once, and I never told nobody. But when we drove home from church last Sunday, as soon as we walked in the house, I told him the truth about what I'd done, with whom, and when. I said well what happened next she said you're never going to believe it preacher I told him all I had done and I waited I waited for him to start hooting and hollering and raising hell and you know what he said to me he said honey I know you cheated on me I forgave you a long time ago can you believe the nerve of that man preacher here I am carrying around this guilt all these years and he forgave me a long time ago can you believe it can you believe it The story of Jacob turned Israel, it captivates our hearts because it doesn't end according to the way that it's supposed to. Any good consumer of tales knows that Jacob is supposed to get his comeuppance, whether by violence enacted on him by his brother or judgment from God Almighty. He is nothing but a loser through and through, which means he's just like us the good news is that grace works for losers and only for losers no matter how hard we try and try hard we do we can't save ourselves we can't make ourselves right we try all the time though we usually make life one heck of a mess but the lord has a way of showing up and reminding us all of us that we are not as we ought to be that we are so to speak up the creek without a paddle that we do nothing, we deserve nothing, and yet God has given us everything because God forgives us. Can you believe it? The story of Israel, the forgiven heel grabber, reminds us that God comes to us in our weariness, in our woundedness. God ultimately does not rule from a throne of glory, but from the arms of a cross. God's power is revealed in the weakness of Christ. God's grace comes to us in our weakness. We don't have the strength, nor do we have the power to save ourselves. We are as helpless as Jacob, hobbling around with a limp, with our hips out of joint. We can run as far as we can for as long as we can, but one day God is going to catch up with you. God is going to grab hold of you, and God is going to tell you your name it's Israel. What kind of name is Israel? It means you have striven against God and other people and you've made it to the other side. You are forgiven. Can you believe it? So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever.